Welcome to the second edition of our social distancing podcast on the financial reporting implications of COVID-19 epidemic. I'm Sasha Laktionova, and just like the rest of New Zealand, I am actually thrilled with the move to alert level three and the welcome addition of takeaways to the dinner menu. That exciting change aside, not much changed uh, for me and my colleagues here, hence we are still recording from our home offices. So today, with the help of technology, I'm joined by an awesome group of experts from various pockets of PwC. I've got Karen Shires, our Chief Risk Officer, Tinia Duplessis, Accounting Advisor Partner, and Gareth Galloway, a partner leading our corporate finance team. This impressive lineup is no coincidence. It is, in fact, essential to tackle today's topic, impairment of non-financial assets. We have already highlighted in our previous discussion that this is one of the key issues facing financial reportings everywhere. I think it would be helpful to continue our conversation and dive deeper. So first and foremost, impairment testing is a complex exercise, full of judgment, even during the best of times. And the COVID-19 related uncertainties do not make it any easier. So my first question is for Karen. What, what what would be uh, uh, some of the things that the stakeholders and in particular regulators would be expecting from companies during these trying times? Look, thanks, Sasha. I think the regulators here in New Zealand have acted really quickly to provide relief by extending reporting deadlines. Look, they did this so that they can assist entities to ensure that their financial reporting was robust. And we need robust reporting to ensure that we can underpin our capital markets. Entities actually have the time to carefully think about the impact of COVID-19 on their financial statements instead of being forced to rush through it. Now, I think this highlights that the regulators have an overarching expectation of quality reporting and that they expect thorough accounting analysis, which will be challenging and time consuming. Regulators and the market expect transparency in how key challenges are disclosed and in how the financial statements were prepared. The inherent uncertainties and the judgments that were made. This integrity will help build the confidence in the financial reporting. It's hard to achieve such transparency without having the proper internal documentation. And this is relevant to both reporters and their auditors. Assessing and documenting in detail the assumptions and the estimates that are used will be paramount in these times of uncertainty. When impairment modelling and valuations are highly sensitive to changes and the entity specific circumstances, you need increased disclosure. Management will need to take the time to do that and to bring in experts as needed. Bringing in experts assists in providing an impartial view to help come up with a well-reasoned position. That is certainly very true, Karen. Uh, would you say that external disclosure should follow a similar detailed and transparent approach? Oh, absolutely. We understand that boards are dealing with a myriad of operational challenges and uncertainty, but this is not the time for a relaxed approach to financial reporting. 
Directors need to ensure that reporting is as robust and transparent as it can be. Regulators and markets are expecting to see complete and adequate disclosures in the financial statements regarding the impact of COVID-19. Entities need to consider the disclosure requirements around critical estimates and judgments and how they approach their impairment testing, what some of the sensitivities might be and so on. In many cases, I suspect, Sasha, that this will mean disclosing information beyond what is strictly required by the accounting standards, but that the directors believe is necessary to provide a complete picture of the impact of COVID-19 on their business. Thank you, Karen. I think your messages set the scene quite perfectly to kickstart our conversation here about some of the specifics. I'm actually going to call on my fellow accounting advisory expert here, Tinia. So is COVID-19 pandemic considered a triggering event um, good enough to perform an impairment test? Wow, that's a million dollar question here, Sasha. Unfortunately, for a number of entities, the answer will be yes, given that COVID-19 is likely to have resulted in a significant adverse impact on both the macroeconomic and operational level in which the entity operates. Entities across a broad range of industries are likely to see a decrease in profit as a result of various factors, such as lagging demand, higher costs, restrictions on operations, such as the inability to source raw materials or export products, or the inability to raise or negotiate financing. For some entities, we have also seen significant declines in market capitalization to levels below the value of net assets. Whilst this is an impairment triggering event, an entity will have to perform an impairment assessment which might not result in an actual impairment. Thank you for clarifying this important point, Tinia. I've also actually heard opinions that COVID-19 is likely to just have a really short-term impact on uh, share prices and businesses. So Gareth, would you agree with that statement? Sasha, how long it will take businesses and our economy to recover from the effects of COVID-19 is a question we really can't answer, but we can try to understand the impact of it via scenarios. Some economists have assumed that the downturn will be relatively short-lived through 2020-2021, with earnings then reverting to trends uh, evident before COVID-19. It's been called a V-shaped downturn, but an increasing number are predicting that the downturn will be prolonged and that the future trajectory, it may or may not uh, return to trend. Um, these um, outcomes have been described as a U-shaped or an L-shaped recession. Ultimately, companies should consider their own future under one of those scenarios. A good example is a company considering, you know, whether government expenditure on infrastructure Post the lockdown period, which has been strongly flagged, you know, by our government, you know, that would support the overall economy, and it will support, in particular, some sectors such as construction and building materials, and all allied services to those sectors. You know, the company would need to consider, you know, what is going to be the impact uh, of that particular factor. Finally, I would note companies that are well capitalised and do have a strong competitive position are likely to be better placed to take advantage of the upturn when it comes. 
historically, many of the biggest changes in market share have taken place either during or immediately post-recessions. Thank you, Gareth. Now, moving on further, how do we then go about performing the actual impairment test? What is the first step here? Well, Sasha, first of all, you need to think about what you're actually testing. In good years, many entities would only have had to perform annual impairment testing for goodwill and possibly for other indefinite large intangible assets. In the current year, however, it is likely that impairment triggers will result in more assets being subject to an impairment test. The accounting standards require a bottom-up approach to impairment testing. That means that individual assets should therefore be tested and if necessary impaired prior to performing goodwill impairment tests on a CGU. That's a really important point, Tinia. So for some entities, it would mean adding an extra layer of testing at levels lower than a, groups, a group of CGUs, which would include goodwill. Is there anything else uh, that finance teams need to think about from the valuation approach perspective? Yes, definitely, Sasha. Finance teams will need to think about which method, valuation methodology is appropriate to use to determine a recoverable amount. For example, in the current environment, you'll need to assess whether it's actually possible to determine fair value less cost of disposal using earnings multiples or recent transactions, um, given the uncertainties within the market. This could mean that you may need to revert to a discounted cash flow methodology instead. In addition to this, where the recoverable amount determined actually does result in an impairment, both value in use and fair value less cost of disposal must be determined. Um, and that is because the accounting standards require the recoverable amount to be set at the higher of fair value less cost of disposal and value in use. That's a really good reminder, Tinia. Thank you for that. Now, jumping back to you, Gareth. Tinia mentioned that fair value less cost of disposal may be quite difficult to determine using earnings multiples or recent transactions in today's circumstances. Can you please elaborate for our listeners on why that might be the case? Yes, certainly, Sasha. For some companies, this will undoubtedly be the case. And there are a number of reasons for this. A couple of call out would include the following. Volatility. There has been a significant level of equity market volatility since early March when COVID began to emerge as an issue. Um, and in some cases, this volatility have been, has been driven by very limited trading volumes. Um, and what does this mean? It means that even greater care must be taken uh, when you're considering the comparability and the relevance of trading multiples to a company being assessed. Secondly, many companies have withdrawn any guidance on their earnings outlook. And what this does is it removes the ability to calculate prospective earnings multiples for those comparable companies. This will result in a thinner pool of comparable multiples um, to look at. Um, but there may still be an ability to analyze multiples on a last 12 month basis, um, say to December 2019. So just be clear on that. 
looking at, for example, the enterprise value ratio, rather than looking at it relative to next year's earnings, look at it relative to the 12 months of trading to December 2019, which would have been unaffected by COVID. Lastly, M&A multiples, transaction multiples, will relate to deals that were completed pre the impacts of COVID, and hence they are very unlikely to be of the same relevance um, as they would have been pre-COVID across many sectors. This will not be the case in all sectors because some sectors are relatively less affected, but generally speaking, transaction multiples should be treated with great care when undertaking a fair value less cost to sell assessment. Having said all of this, comparable multiples will still be available, and in many cases, they will still be relevant to a fair value less cost to sell assessment, and they hence should be considered as they always would be. Understood. Uh, it's definitely something to think about if you've relied on this methodology in the past. Uh, do you think that there may be any limitations with using a discounted cash flow method? How would you actually factor in the risks and uncertainties into cash flows in this environment? And I obviously appreciate this uh, not an easy question and maybe not an easy answer just to give in 22 minutes or something. That's for sure, Sasha. Um, it is, however, the number one impairment-related issue a, a lot of companies are grappling with at the moment. To start with, I wanted to highlight that accounting standards do actually allow more than one way to approach impairment cash flows. Generally, finance teams in New Zealand use a traditional single scenario approach to cash flows. But an alternative approach can be used, which is called the multiple scenario approach. As you can imagine, it is going to be very difficult for anyone to come up with one absolute version of a truth. Even just figuring out how long it is going to take to return to a new normal and what this new normal might look like is going to be impossible to get right. It is likely that with these uncertainties and risks, various scenario modelling will be prepared for boards to help them understand the good, the bad and the ugly of the potential COVID-19 impacts. These scenarios will likely be used by finance teams as part of the annual budgeting cycle or funding purposes. I would expect companies to leverage all these scenarios and use these to inform any impairment testing that is being performed. Finance teams may then consider probability weighting these scenarios to derive a single set of cash flows which incorporates the risks and uncertainties we've been speaking about. It will, however, be important to use assumptions that are reasonable and supportable to the extent that it is possible in this environment, as ultimately the board will have to be satisfied with these forecasts and the board will, of course, need to approve these forecasts. And that leads lastly into my next point. As Karen mentioned earlier, documentation prepared by entities must stand up to regulatory scrutiny. It is now more than ever critical to ensure that all judgments and assumptions used are supported where possible with external data. Thank you. Those are really great points, Tinia. I did also want to ask Gareth about the type of external data that you would expect to see to support key assumptions? 
it's difficult to generalize, Sasha, but we would expect to see cash flow scenarios tied to broader sector trends and to consensus economic forecasts of the broader outlook. Key data sources in this regard will include retail bank, reserve bank, and other economist forecasts. Research from views on sector outlooks, a good example is IBIS, do some very robust and detailed sector outlook reports, and any comparable listed companies' outlook statements to the stock exchange. At a more detailed level, um, for example, a tourism business may be using surveys, such as the ANZ's recent survey of Kiwi travel intentions, and also information about the size and the potential um, of New Zealand and Australian outbound tourists to spend money uh, within their own domestic economy uh, during a potential trans-Tasman bubble period. Discount rates will need to be updated where relevant based on market evidence. For example, updating the cost of debt using the most recent market pricing for bonds. However, because of the general uncertainty of outlook, judgment will also play an important role in developing plausible scenarios. In this regard, companies should also consider seeking external expert input where necessary. Thank you so much, Gareth. This is very helpful. Now, Tinia, uh, obviously impairments are very complex, uh, and I think a little cheat sheet would be very helpful to everyone. So what are, in your experience, some of the most common pitfalls that companies should be thinking about when preparing their cash flow forecasts? Sure thing, Sasha. There are definitely a few things worth highlighting. Firstly, always base your impairment cash flows on board-approved forecasts. If you are making projections beyond a formal board-approved period, Use a steady or declining growth rate, which does not exceed the relevant long-term average growth rate. Use consistent assumptions. We're using information across different tests. And what I mean by that is ensure that assumptions for impairment tests, for example, aligns when assessing deferred tax assets. The economic environment doesn't stand still, and this is particularly true in today's world. So continuously reassess assumptions used and outcomes right through to a signing date of financial statements and the publication of the annual report. Consider whether these impacts impact on conclusions previously reached or disclosures made. There are new complexities brought about by the implementation of the new leasing standard. Ensure that you understand these and think about how to deal with this early on. And lastly, entities' results are likely to be significantly impacted. This means that small errors could potentially have a more significant impact in comparison to prior years. So now more than ever, it is important for finance teams to have a solid understanding of the basic requirements of the accounting standards so as not to get tripped up on minor technicalities. Basics, such as how to deal with working capital, capex, corporate overheads, foreign currency assets, amongst others, become more important than ever before. You're spot on, Tinia. Getting the basics right will save you lots of headaches down the road.
Now, we don't have lots of time to go over this today, but I just wanted to highlight that PwC Academy has an online training course available for those of you wanting to brush up their impairment testing knowledge. Now, obviously, the last but in no shape or form least input into the impairment testing methodology is the discount rate. Now, Gareth, what are the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic on the discount rate? The first point I'd make, Sasha, is despite the uncertainties in the current economic environment, the established methods for calculating the cost of capital should continue to be used. As always, a reassessment of each input that goes into a discount rate calculation um, is needed. The discount rate does not, however, simply result from the application of a formula. It requires the exercise of judgment, which needs to be made in the context of the wider valuation exercise. In particular, if the cash flows are still considered to incorporate an elevated level of COVID-19 related risk, even after probability weighting different scenarios to estimate expected outcomes, the discount rate may need to be adjusted upwards via a premium. However, management should first attempt to adjust the cash flows to make any before making any adjustments to the discount rate, because it's generally difficult to estimate and to support a specific risk premium. To the extent that COVID uncertainties are not fully reflected in cash flows, um, the additional specific risk premium should be added to the discount rate and would need to be calibrated to available evidence and studies on such premiums and to assess the relativity of the particular premium for the company concerned to identified typical ranges. Thank you so much, Gareth. It does sound like the uncertainty is creating a lot of challenges for impairment testing. I mean, coming up with the reasonable estimates of cash flows and what I hear is discount rate is definitely not going to be easy. Um, any last pieces of advice here, guys, on how you would propose on dealing with that? Sasha, as I've said before, a disclose, 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 but good disclosure is critical. Start with the basics. IAS 36 and IAS 1 has plenty of disclosure requirements to help you explain to the readers of the financial statements your impairment testing journey. However, in this environment, it is critical to stand back and think about once you have complied with the requirements on, of a standard, whether you're actually telling users of the financial statements the full story to help them understand what has caused an asset to be impaired or potentially even why an asset is not impaired. What are the judgments that have been made? What are the key assumptions and what are the risks and uncertainties associated with each of these? How have these risks and uncertainties been incorporated into cash flows or discount rates? What are the material risks to an entity's activities, operations, and future prospects? You could potentially think about whether additional sensitivity disclosure could be made to explain these risks, or whether additional qualitative disclosures could be helpful to users of the financial statements. Although it's a really difficult time for everyone, the adequacy of your financial reporting will be judged in the future with perfect hindsight by stakeholders, including regulators. A good principle to keep front of mind is, as Tinia said, 
Do the financial statements tell the story of how you approach the key estimates and judgments? But also, did you articulate what the potential downside is, what may cause that, and what the impacts could be? Bring in external experts to help you work through the elements we have discussed. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, team, and thank you so much for joining us today on this challenging but important topic. I hope insights that we've shared will set you up for the journey ahead. Now, obviously, new information and developments keep unfolding constantly. So stay tuned for our other publications related to COVID-19. As usual, we'll be sharing more food for thought, so watch out for these as they come. Finally, look after yourselves and your loved ones in your bubble. Please stay strong and be kind. Kaha, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by PwC. Please see pwc.co.nz for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.